0: Welcome. We are uh, in the middle, this is the second week. We're not even at the middle yet. This is the second week of a six part series that we started last week. Um, this is sandwiched between two very practical series. We just came out of a series on Silence and Solitude and this will be followed most likely by a series on community. Um, both of these had immediate, immediate practical aspects that we could practice as we went along. Uh, this series is a little less practical. We're aiming more for a context. We wanna look at, The practices are how we be disciples. We want to look at why we're disciples. We want to put something of a story into... My wife's making motions. Yes, I am. Thank you. Continuing on the recording. Um, Yes. (laughs) Um, And I forgot entirely what I was talking about. Point is, this is a series to give context. We're trying to figure the story that we find ourselves in the midst of that gives a reason, a motivation for why we're disciples. It gives the reason, it gives the goal. Um, outside of that, we just practice silence and solitude, or we just seek community to as an add-on to the life we want to live already. We want to find the story that we're a part of. Um, there's a couple ways you can approach scripture. You can come to scripture and you can look at it as a story that you come to to mine for at things you can abstract to attach to the life you're already living. What we want to do instead is come to it as a story that is already in place and step into it ourselves. So we're taking is we're stepping back to look at the full story. Last week we started with the f- creation and the fall. We looked at how God. When he came, he created with great intention and he put in the midst of this creation two people bearing his image with the purpose of his glory being seen throughout the entire creation through these people. That as they, he gave them three vocations that aligned to this, that as they went forth multiplying, you would, everywhere you went, you would see somebody who looks like God the closest you're gonna get in creation. As they went with another rule to subdue and have dominion, you would experience what it's like to be ruled by God. And they also thirdly had a call to be priests before God, to take care of this temple garden where God's presence was, which they would expand until it covers the whole earth. So that is the calling of mankind to see God's glory seen throughout the earth. Instead, what happens is Somebody who was created to be in the image of God decides they want to be like God and reaches up to take that place. There's a rebellion and an assertion of a role and a corruption enters into humanity and that affects all of those vocations. Instead of being images that are designed to show God's glory, we become cracked images that are self-aggrandizing and showing off our own glory. Instead of subduing and ruling in a nice orderly way that expands God's good order. We still rule and subdue, but we now do it in an oppressive manner. And instead of being priests, and this is the most tragic one, we're cut off from God's presence. Adam and Eve are driven from the garden from which was to be their base, where they would experience intimacy with God, and from which they were to go forth on this world bringing that about. They've been cut off from the source of life that was supposed to power and drive all of these transformations. So that's where we find ourselves at the end of last week. And this week picks up with the genealogy, because it's the Bible. And everything exciting follows a genealogy. Um, genealogies serve to as markers. It's, It uses them in the text, because remember, this is a text that's written originally without chapter markers. It doesn't have verses. Those were later editions. The genealogies often in the Old Testament serve to mark. Something's changing. It says it's a changing of a chapter. The problem is, by this time in the story, we've seen a handful of genealogies kick over. The fall happens, and we see a genealogy, and we get hope that something new is going to happen, and it goes south. And then you get another genealogy, and you get a hope that something's gonna happen again, and again, corruption shows up and we end up back where we started. And again and again and again, you just see mankind going around in circles, basically slowly circling the drain, digging a rut, as you see no hope. So you get a genealogy and it feels like it's, genealogy are kind of the opening credits to a movie, and it feels like this is the opening credits to a movie we've seen before and it really sucks. We know where this one ends and we know it's no fun along the way. So the question here that you leave Genesis 11 with is, is there any hope here? Yeah, genealogy starting, but isn't this just gonna be the same thing we've already seen? And what we're looking for in these next five weeks is, is there hope? Is there hope on a cosmic scale that For all of humanity, we can regain even something of what we lost, that we can regain something of the vocation that was taken from us. And most of all, that we can regain something of that intimacy and connection with God that was our priestly right, that should fuel a good life. And on a personal level, is there hope as we get stuck in those ruts of life? Because we all know what it is to be in relationships where you feel like, this is the same argument I've had before. You get up and you have hope that this time we're setting off on a different path and you come right back around to where you are. Or you have the patterns that show up in your own life where you start off and you end up at the end of the day going, Again, God, I did it again. We are all part of this story that's happened. So what we're looking here is to see, is there hope that this changes? Or are we just destined to walk around this same rut forever because if we're just destined to walk around this rut forever we can after five weeks we don't find anything we can just change the tagline of the church to eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die and we'll go along because really there's no point if there's no hope to this if we're just going to walk in circles we might as well have a good time while we do it so that's what we're looking for next week is jesus just to give you a hint that some hope might be coming this week we're covering the old testament the Old Testament. To give you an idea of the scope of what we're doing, last week I did 10 pages of my Bible. This week I'm doing 1,047. (laughs) Um, This will be very cursory. Um, We are going, there's names that you don't need to know your Bible that I'm not gonna mention, they're that, like we're not just skipping the B list, we're like A list doesn't make it into this sermon because we don't have time. A plus only. Um, And to keep things focused for this story, to give some sort of structure so I don't just ramble for the next three and a half hours, um, we're going to look at it through the patriarchs, which would be the generations before Israel kind of came together as a nation. Then we're going to look at Israel under the judges, which was their initial ruling structure, and then Israel under the kings. So that's our structure. But as we do this, we're going to go through looking for those things. We're going to look to see for spots where we see God's presence, and to see, is there a fix for the corruption that's at people's hearts? And do we see some restoration of that vocational call we had? Does that all make sense? Good. And now I need to talk fast. So back to the story, a genealogy. In Genesis 11, these are the generations of Shem. And this genealogy ends with Terah. And now the Bible, trying to out-Bible itself, goes directly into another genealogy. And these are the generations of Terah. And this one ends with Terah dying in the wilderness. So we're not off to a good start immediately. But then we turn the chapter to Genesis 12. And there are those moments in a story where something shifts dramatically. And Genesis 12:1 is a dramatic shift in the Bible story. At the end of these genealogies, Terah is Abraham's father. Terah dies in the wilderness, but now we see something very different happen. Now the Lord said to Abram, and this would be Abraham, he's called Abram here, he gets his name changed, but this is Abraham, the first of the patriarchs, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So this, we see something different here. We see God coming down. The last time we saw God coming down, it was to thwart the people at Babel. Here, God comes to a man, and he gives him a promise. And there's two things to note in this promise. First, he promises to make him a nation. Now, you need a couple things to have a nation. First off, I cannot alone be a nation. Abraham and Sarah alone could not be a nation. You don't get a nation out of one or two people. You need a mass of people, right? And you also, just a mass of people doesn't make a nation. My boss at work, and this is a fascinating story, he can trace his family's line back to four brothers who fled Palestine in like 760 and moved to Greece. And ever since then, the the firstborn male of every family has their names recorded in a literal book you can see. And they have conferences where their family gets together. They are a worldwide family that you've never heard of, because I've never heard this name before either. But they get together and they have conferences. So they have a multitude of people, but they're still not a nation because they don't have the other thing a nation needs, which is a rule, a unified system of being that's usually tied to a land. So right here in this promise that God gives to Abraham that he will be a nation, we see God promising to multiply Abraham and to give him a a thing that he will rule. So we see a recapitulation of two of the locations that have already happened. God shows up, and the first thing he does is immediately reissue something of the promise that we had in Genesis 1. And then he goes on, because the other thing, major thing, he says, this is not just a nation that exists for itself. This is a nation that God will bless and which will be a blessing to others. It is something that receives from God and then administers that blessing to other people, which is to say it has a priestly calling upon it. So we see in this call right here, we see something of a reason to hope because God has shown up and he's stated a promise that we thought we lost. He has come to a people and said, this is what will happen. I will make you a great nation and you will be a blessing to others and I will bless you. And God will come through. The patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and God comes to each one of them and restates this promise. God is faithful through this generation as he sees this story forward. So we have something to get excited about, but it should be a limited degree of excitement because it's restored, but it's just to one people. There is a massive difference between every human being and, uh, acting as priests and every human being displaying God's image and every human being acting in a way that rules in accordance with God and one family or one nation doing it. Um, And also, God is present, but it's in a very different manner than you had in Eden. In Eden, remember you have a mountain with with a river that flows down to a garden where God is continuously present with these people, administering his blessing, which is to go forth. Instead, here we get altars. We get little punctuated points of God's presence through the land as these patriarchs move around. Um, Abraham will do an altar here, he'll go a little bit more, he'll make another altar, then he goes back and he makes an altar in the first place again, and then his son makes altars. Jacob, his grandson, will make altars. And in each of these spots, you see a location where God is administering something to the world, but it's not yet that permanent dwelling or an expansive, continuous spot for transformation. Um, This is kind of typified by Jacob has a dream at one point where he sees a ladder with angels descending and ascending upon it. And he says, this is a place from God. And there God comes and again reiterates the promise to him. So it's a spot where heaven is starting to break through to earth, but it's still very limited and very small and only for moments. It feels like God is consistently showing up in these people's lives. And you realize they live a long time. So they go long spaces without God doing, any, God being present. It, this is not like Abraham wakes up and talks to God, and like three weeks later, God shows up, and then a day later, God's on his doorstep, and then he walks up, has tea, and God's there. It's God shows up at points along the story to bring it forward, but it is not that consistent dwelling yet. And we also see a very limited change of heart. Um, Some people are reading through the Bible right now as a group in the church and one of the things that has struck some people is how utterly dysfunctional the patriarchs are. We were talking this morning and I commented that we usually picture this as being something, these early chapters of Genesis is something you would shoot in a historical epic sense with lots of special effects when it could probably be more accurately conveyed in something like the Real Housewives of Orange County with some shaky cam and testimonial from Abraham about what a pain these other people are they are terribly dysfunctional. And that can be typified by Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson, so he's the last of the patriarchs. He is the second born. He manages to maneuver himself into stealing his brother's birthright. Then, with the help of his mother, he deceives his ailing, dying father into giving him the chief inheritance and the blessing. His brother's naturally angry about this, so Jacob has to flee to another place where he has more backwards relations with his family, marries a sister, well, tries to marry a sister, fails, marries the other sister, still wants this one, so he marries two sisters, which is such a bad idea, it's going to be outlawed in Israel, Gets, and gets two of their, uh, their servants, has children through all four of them, shows such favoritism to one that it carries through to the generations where The children of the other three rise up and fake this one's death and sell sell them into slavery. That's this family, and that's the history we're dealing with here. So there's a reason to hope, because God is active, but it's a very limited reason to hope so far. But one huge change we see is a change in faith. Again, it's minor, because God does things like he gives promises to Abraham, and Abraham immediately, like, you will be a nation. And the first thing Abraham does is he goes to, um, to another land. So he's going to have a land. He goes to a different land, and he's going to have a child. And he says, this woman who's my wife, let's just tell everybody you're my sister. That way they'll treat me nice, which is just as creepy as it sounds. I mean, this is roughly like a guy being in trouble at work and thinking, okay, there's an office party going, coming up and turning to his wife and going, you're attractive. When we're at the office party, my boss is a little bit of a player, so act interested. Kind of imply we have an open relationship, so he doesn't fire me, and he might give me a promotion so we can go on the executive trip next week. Abraham. So he does this. He comes back and... God makes a covenant with him, which is a promise God makes, where it's two parties binding themselves together, agreeing, I will do this for you, you will do this for me, and God comes and makes makes this promise very official. Now, covenants with God are kind of like um, cleaning the room with your child, where you go, we're gonna clean the room, and I set one box out and tell Rose to get the five Legos in there, and I clean up the rest of the room, and I turn around, and she's opened the Legos, and she's playing with them. That's roughly how the covenants with God work, very lopsided, Um, but he does make a covenant. He says, no, you will have a son. It will be your son that will be your heir. So Abraham kind of thinks, and at his wife's bidding, just make sure she's not clear here, he goes and has a child with his slave which goes well. God comes back and reiterates one more time, no, it's going to be your child through Sarah. So Abraham goes to Egypt and says, this is my sister again, and God has to interact. So what we see here, though, more than Abraham's faith through this portion is we see God being faithful to this, but Abraham is growing in faith during this time. He is, at this early part, he has a promise that he believes God will bring about, but he's still trying to maneuver his way into it. He's trying to keep him safe in Israel and get the blessings of the land by saying, this is my sister. And he's also trying to make sure he has a child by going to a different woman. But when it finally comes and he has a concrete item that points to this promise, when he has this son through whom the promise is supposed to go, God actually says, you need to go sacrifice him. You need to go up a mountain and sacrifice your son. He looks at what he believes is actually the fulfillment of the promise, and he is willing to go sacrifice it because he still believes God can see it through. So we see a man grow in faith. Just to save that story, God stops the sacrifice, so we don't have a child sacrifice here, but that's the story on this mountain. God sends the sacrifice himself, just a little bit of foreshadowing. Um, so it's a mixed bag, the patriarchs. We have reasons to hope, They At the end of this story, there is now 70 of them, which is moving towards a multitude. Um, They aren't ruling, but they are going into another land where they will be influential. So, okay there. And God's presence, though not consistent and persistent dwelling with them, is something that is punctuated and is having something of effect. So we have a reason to hope, kind of as this chapter draws to a close. And then we move on to, then we basically jump forward 400 years, in Egypt, and things don't look so good again. We have the people who were multiplying. They've multiplied, but now they are actively being trying to put to death. Somebody's trying to put them to death. The issue is coming down from Pharaoh to toss your children in the water because there's just too many of you. They have gone from being influential with a, in a land that wasn't their own to now they're being oppressed as slaves, and God appears to have basically been silent for 400 years. So, again, we had this hope, and it feels like we're bending back around to the path we've followed again and again and again. But God calls another man. He calls Moses, and he sends Moses and his brother Aaron to go to Pharaoh. And through them, he topples Egypt enough to bring the Israelites out of this slavery and out of this nation. And he takes them to a mountain. He takes them to Mount Sinai. And if you ever notice a theme, God loves mountains really loves mountains. They show up again and again and again every time something important happens. And at this mountain, God makes a covenant with these people. As he made a covenant with Abraham, he makes a covenant with this group of people and he forms a nation as his nation. He's also present in a way he has not been present before. Remember, historically, it's been small points, altars. Here, it's a mountain. Previously, it would be just he'd be in a dream or he would show up as a single man here. He is visible in smoke and flame atop a mountain and where typically it would just show up to one person or two people here. He is appearing before a multitude of people. So we have something dramatically changing here in God's presence among these people. And we have in Mount Sinai, the way, it, the, basically the way people are around this So picture the mountain and you have Israel in a camp down here at its base. And then they're, they are not to go onto the mountain. They are not. Very clear. You touch the mountain, you will die. And God makes the covenant there, and then he takes up the elders from this group, and they, the elders are allowed to come up with Moses, and they have a meal with God in this middle section and then Moses alone is able to go up to the top of the mountain. So you have a single spot where God's presence is dwelling mightily that only one person can go up into. Then you have a midsection with a table where representatives meet with God who then go down to the bottom level and administer out this covenant that's been made and the rules we have here to a people with hopes that God's presence kind of flowing down through this would be transformative here. That's the location of this, and we have a covenant set up, but one major other thing that happens here is God establishes a tabernacle, which is a word we use all the time. He basically makes a little moving temple, to use something more picture. It's a temple that is to be set in the middle of the people. So Israel is to be arrayed in this little, like, kind of cross-shaped camp is how they get laid out. In dead center of it, he's gonna put his temple. And this temple is laid out with a holy section where the Ark of the Covenant, which will hold the covenant, it's a little golden box with a cherub on the top and cherubim, not little, don't think things with arrows, but more terrifying. A gold place that's his throne, the footstool of his kingdom, where his presence will dwell that one person can enter into, a middle section where there's a table where the priests minister to God and where they can dine, and then an outer courts where they come and administer and the covenant to these people, representing God and representing um, God to these representing God to these people and representing these people to God. So basically, what you see in the tabernacle is God is taking this temple where He has appeared in an entirely different way, and He's making it mobile. He's putting it in their midst, and He is going to come and dwell in the center of them. And to give you a sense of how that flows, let me turn on the way off. just to be clear, he goes through this temple in painful detail. If you've just read through it, he lays out how the temple is to be laid out in multiple chapters, every single detail. And then they do it in multiple chapters in every single detail. The layout of this is very important to him and it's because of what it represents. It is something that points back to what happens in Mount Sinai, it points back to where you had at Eden, it points back to basically the structure of all of creation, and God makes it so that it will sit in the middle of them as his dwelling place. And this is after it's completed. So again, it's after five chapters of telling us how he's gonna do it, five chapters of doing it, and then we get to this. In uh, Exodus 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God has established a place where he will dwell. The thing that Aaron read earlier was basically because of Israel's sin, God's told them, I'm not going to dwell in your midst, and they were crushed because they, this was what the most special thing that happens here is God comes to dwell amongst his people, and for a moment it seemed like they were going to lose it. Because we see a new problem here. We have a new hope, but we also get a feel for a new problem. God has come to dwell in the people's midst, but we get a sense of why this has not happened previously, because he is a holy and mighty God, and that is very dangerous for a sinful and wicked people. To some extent, we're better off at a distance from God than right next to him because of our sin, but we need him in our midst to do away with the sin. He is the only one that can defeat the corruption that's within us. His presence can drive the corruption out. But if we get too close to his presence, we, who are corrupt, die. So you have a dilemma here. We are like patients who have a disease who can't live through the treatment. So we have a situation where God has come to dwell in the midst of a people, but he'll destroy them as things sit at the end of this. So what he sets out in Leviticus, the exciting chapter, uh, um, the exciting book that everybody's Bible reading plan ends in, uh, he establishes a means of atoning for sin and purifying these people so that he can dwell in their midst without destroying them. So we're in a good spot here. We were in a bad spot leaving yet was rough leaving egypt but we've come to a good spot god has established this covenant with his people who he calls a royal priesthood and a holy nation he's given them a set of rules that if they follow they will emulate his rule of how he has established the world and his presence has come to dwell in the midst of them and he's going to give them a land where they can they can be and he's going to Promise that there's going to be no miscarriages and no barrenness among them. So we see everything's coming together now. We have God in the midst, and you can already see the outworking as these people get a vocation that now is a step up. It's closer to what we had than we saw in the patriarchs. So everything goes well now, right? (laughs) Stop now. No, not at all. Um, Israel is almost creative in the ways they come up to rebel and uh chase idolatry the next few sections of the bible read like a dark comedy um, as israel comes up with new and better ways to completely forget what just happened and to complain and ultimately it gets so bad that god tells all these people that he just appeared to and told them they're going to go into land that none of them get to go in that their kids are going to go in and we're back to walking around in circles in the, in the wilderness they finally do go in and establish into this land. But then you get the book of Judges, which is one of the darkest, most twisted books in the Bible. Um, It's one of the ones that if we were to actually preach through it, we probably would have to have an age limit so we could actually say what's in the text. Um, But the general storyline of Judges is Israel's doing okay, they fall into sin, they get oppressed, they call out for help, God sends a judge and rescues them, and we're back to being okay. Israel falls into sin, they fall into oppression, they call for help, God sends a judge, and each time, though, it gets a little worse. The judges get worse and the oppression gets worse. The length of time they're oppressed increases. It just goes steadily downhill until you get the final chapters of Judges that we just won't mention. Because that's just twisted. Um, but we see this pattern. We have hope leaving Mount Sinai because God's presence is in their midst. He's established rules, he's gonna multiply them. We hope for transformation. They have good law that they can do and they have a means of atoning for their sin. But again, the bend of the human heart and the corruption is just too thick and they start to drift back towards the center. And this whole section ends in the early parts of 1 Samuel where in a fit of superstitious fancy, Israel decides they're gonna win a battle by taking the ark with them against their enemies. The Philistines rout them, steal the ark and the priesthood dies in the same day. So we end this section with Israel being oppressed by people who have taken them over, the sight of God's presence being stolen by a foreign power, and the priesthood dead. All three locations cracked again. Again, we're back around in the circle. But God continues acting. In one of the funnier sections of the Bible, the Philistines decide to set the ark in the midst of their temple. And that night, their idol idol falls over. I think it's Dagon falls over. The priests of Dagon put it back up. And they come back the next day. And just to make clear, they got the point. The idol's fallen down. And now its head and its hands are sitting on the threshold. So they send the ark back to Israel eventually. Um, And Israel, and God raises up Samuel, who is a good judge, who again leads the cycle. But Israel asks for a king, which starts that next section of Israel's rule. The first king's an absolute disaster, which brings us to the second king is the one who is the model for all good kings. This is King David. He is the the man after God's own heart, and he basically drives out the enemies, he wins all the battles, he establishes a good uh, home, he takes over Jerusalem, which is the center of the Jewish land, and we see finally kind of the victory of the promised land of the enemies driven out. And then his son takes it into the golden age, Solomon, who builds the temple on, uh, in Jerusalem. And also, ha- I mean, the stories of Solomon's wealth in the Bible are tremendous. And pe- the foreign dignitaries are coming. And Israel has reached its peak at this point. So things are going well again. We see concrete examples of a good rule by good kings. God's presence has come to dwell mightily in this temple. We get something in 2 Chronicles that's very similar to what we just saw in Exodus, where Solomon prays and the glory of God falls upon this place and the priests can't enter into it. Again, God has come to dwell amongst his people now in a permanent home atop a mountain. We're getting back there. We've got good rule. The people are multiplying. There's peace on the borders and a priesthood that's working. But we also see signs of trouble because the corruption in the heart still runs deep. David, the king who is the model, has an affair with a woman and then kills a man to cover it up. He runs his family so poorly that one of his children rapes another one, and then he mishandles that, and it ends with a rebellion where one of his sons tries to overthrow him and sleeps with all of his concubines in front of everybody and eventually dies while David takes back his kingdom never to reach the form he had before all this. And then his son Solomon, again, starts off fairly well before drifting into what seems like a competition to see how many wives he can get, and he wanders off into idolatry. And he manages to raise up a son who is so adept a leader that his very first legislative act splits the kingdom. And now we don't even have a united kingdom. You have a kingdom up north that turns immediately to idolatry. God establishes this this kingdom, and the first thing they do is decide they're not going to worship God where He said they're, where He told them to worship Him, and they set up a secondary uh, worship spite, and they are in idolatry, their entire existence and officially dragged off by the Assyrians who overrun them. The southern kingdom goes a little better. We get um, they la- we get a couple good kings in the midst. They last about 100 years longer, but they too were dragged off into um, captivity by the Babylonians. And if you remember when we did the series on Daniel, that's where that one picks up. So the people of Israel at the end of this period of the kings have now lost their land. They're no longer self-ruling. They're an oppressed people being cut down by wars and battle. And worst of all, the temple is destroyed and just laid flat, and God's presence is gone again. We lose the ark. We don't know where it goes at this point. Now during this time, this time of decline and during the exile, there are some things that change the story. Um, We get the first, well we've had shadowy hints of this messianic person coming, of a single ruler who will rise up. But finally, in David, there is an established promise given that David will have a king uh, forever. And Daniel has a vision of, of one like the Son of Man who will come, and after the kingdoms are toppled, will reign forever. So we see this, this idea of rule starts to get wrapped around this single person. We also get visions like Isaiah, um, yeah, Isaiah's of the glory of God covering the whole earth. And we see and then Ezekiel has a fantastic vision of this amazing temple that gets built and water flows out of it that restores and brings life everywhere it goes. And even we have something of dealing with the issue of the corruption of the human heart where uh, Jeremiah talks about that God will come and make another covenant and he will write his law on our hearts no one's going to have to teach each other anymore because we will know and finally behave correctly from the inside out. But these things at this point are just promises. We have gone from the concrete hope we had right uh, in David and Solomon to promises again. The people come back from exile. They're in exile 70 years and they start coming back in waves. They rebuild the city, but their rule never comes back. They... If you know where Israel is, it's kind of in the middle of everybody who wants to fight. So they basically spend their time in the middle of uh, armies going back and forth over them and they are oppressed and ruled over people from the point of exile to basically the end of this week's story where we go from the Persians through the Greeks, through the split up of the Greeks, the Egyptians get in there a little, and it ends with Rome. And they have a couple years of sovereignty. Other than that, they are an oppressed people. And the temple gets rebuilt. But whereas with the tabernacle, we have glory falling, priests can't enter, we get the temple built, glory falls, people can't enter, we get nothing like that when this next temple's built. God's presence does not come back as it came back. And we get a couple prophets after the return from the exile, but then it just goes silent. And that's what we end with here. We ran around a circle. And then with Abraham, we start to see a reason to hope. And it, each time the story starts to go sideways and God turns it, he brings Moses to bring things back. He brings Samuel, which restrains things. Judges restrain things. But you keep starting to tilt back the same way. You get the kings who start to return things. And finally here, it feels like we've just gone straight back around and we're back in the ruins of Babel, wondering what happened with the promise of Abraham. It looks like the corruption was too deep in our hearts and the ruts that humans had worn into were just too well set in the earth for us to walk out of them. And that's the end of this week. Um, i got two sunshine and happiness cha- uh, sections of the Bible. But what do we make of this? And I think there's something we need to look at this as we go into next week. Because um, what does this mean for us? Because... Honestly, this is sometimes where we find ourselves, even now, on the other side. We feel like we're in patterns that repeat themselves. It feels like this world just keeps going through the same cycles. We get better technology and the first thing people you figure out how to do with it is kill each other or use it for porn. Um, We have medical advances, but we also figure new ways to kill each other. We have relational breakdowns. Um, We have personal breakdowns. We keep going through cycles but I think this section we just covered of Scripture has a lot to say to those cycles. First, it tells us that God's presence is paramount to any transformation that will actually be lasting. Um, The corruption we saw at the start of everything back last week, part of it was the separation from God's presence. God's presence was meant to be the thing that came down and brought life everywhere it went. It was kind of symbolized, symbolized, that word, by the river in creation that flows down from the mountain into Eden where God's presence is ministered by people that then goes out to the world. And rivers in the ancient world were places where life. You have trees sprouting up next to them. You could put cities by rivers. So God's presence comes down through Eden and brings life. You get a similar thing with Ezekiel, just this presence that goes forth and brings life. And then as we go through the story, the only hope we get along the way is God's presence coming to Abraham, God's presence coming and dwelling in the midst of Israel, God's presence in the temple. We see God's presence bringing about transformation. So whatever solution we're going to find to this problem, it is going to be because God's presence comes and brings it about. But it also shows that our situation is serious. God has a cure, but it's a cure that we are not basically able to take. His presence brings it, but his presence also destroys. We want the corruption wiped out of this world, but we ourselves are corrupt. I mean, that's the whole thing with why can't God do away with all the evil in the world? We forget that it runs straight through us as well. So he'll be doing away with us. So we have the issue of we want God's presence to come and bring this, but we need a means of also covering our own sins and transgressions in the midst of that. The sacrificial system serves that in a very limited way in the midst of Israel, but still there are multiple stories where people just kind of get a little too cavalier with God's presence and they are struck down because God's presence is something that we in our natural sinful states cannot take. And we have, because of that, our corruption pulls us back from God's presence, and we fall back into those same ruts that we're always in. We just keep walking in circles. But God is faithful through the long haul, third point of these. God could have at any point just wiped the plate clean on this. It's honestly, it's what I would have done. Just, I mean, this is 2,000 years of history we've just covered between the, the call here, and at every single turn, everybody messes up. I think the only person of any length and renown in the scriptures, Old Testament, who doesn't have anything that you could really fault them with is Daniel and possibly Jonathan. Other than that, everybody is tainted by sin. There is not a clean hero in the scriptures. But God, through that Continues to work in this story. We see 2,000 years of history. Most of us get frustrated when God doesn't radically transform things in 10 minutes or maybe 10 weeks. But we see time and time again in people's lives, sometimes transformation takes 10 years. It can take many years to undo damage that's done by sin. But God is faithful and he sees these transformations through he's present with these transformations, we need him to be present with these transformations, we need him to be, to somehow deal with our sin and corruption amidst these issues, and we need him to stick by us through the duration it takes to get that done. Which brings me to my last point. We need to recognize where this story ends. If the book ended with Malachi, it would be a very sad book. But the book doesn't end with Malachi. I mean, I mentioned to Becca, I said, um, it's like, everyone's seen Star Wars? If Star Wars ended after Empire, where you have the evil force seems to be the powerful thing that will reign forever, Um, our hero has had his hand chopped off, the other heroes trapped in carbonite, just to work that word into a sermon, Um, and A very bad thing has been revealed to avoid spoilers on a 37-year-old movie, Um, but it's a dark spot. But that's not the last chapter in that story. Um, It goes on and that, that last chapter is actually what recasts what's come before. We need to understand that this book doesn't end with Malachi, that it continues to go forward, that what we will talk about next week occurs, because where this ends right now is terrible. And we need to see that in our own lives. Most of us, we have a tendency to think we see where our live story ends. We reach a point where we think this story of this chapter of my story or this particular part of my tale, that's the last chapter in this book. And we judge things based on that. But God has a habit of continuing to write after we think things are done. And if we judge things based on where we think they are, we think we fall short of the needed transformations. We think we fall short of the needed restoration. We think everything will fall short of where it is. But our, chat, our stories are not written. In Christ, our stories continue to go on. If you walk out here and you have had a miserable time where you've seen your life fall short, where you've seen sin damage your relationships, where you've seen everything, and you're in Christ and you go out and die right now, your story is still not done and it keeps being written. And though we seem to see things going around in circles, what I promise you is in the long arc it actually curves back straight because God is present and he works this out. So we need to be very careful as we look at our own lives, the lives, of our, stories of our relationships, the stories of the habits we have, the stories of this church, and we don't see and think we know where the final page is, the, the final page is written that we're living in the final chapter, and that this is what caps the story and ends it, because it goes on forever. So that's where we end this. We end this section of scripture, we end the Old Testament, the Old Testament actually is a book that calls out for a sequel. I don't think anybody Jewish would actually disagree with that. It is something that looks for a future hope. And we get to the future hope next week. So, please come back. El Communion. I was about to step off. Uh, My wife has serious issues with the way I um, finish servants. Um, And now she has series of thing. Yeah, basically, I walk off and walk off stage. And this time I forgot I was doing communion. Um, I can't drop these mics. They're connected to things. (laughs) Uh, Communion is a wonderfully rich um, event. It is something that has symbolic meaning. It's something that has real meaning. um, But it's also something that points back. One of the things we saw, it's something we use to remember things. And one of the things we saw when we looked at Israel and Mount Sinai, we see the people who are the priests of God, the representatives the people coming up and dwelling, eating in his presence. And in communion, we have a meal that we take as priests, as people who are in Christ, we are priests before God. And we too get to, on a regular basis, come and eat a meal with God we have to eat get to eat a meal of the covenant because what you do is you establish a covenant and then you have a meal. Israel establishes a covenant and then the people go to dine with God on the mountain. And we do something like that here. We have a meal that reminds us of the covenant that we're in. It reminds us of the covenant that has been established by God. It reminds us each time we take it that he is that he has established that covenant, and that he is going to see it through to completion.